There's an expression in English, colloquial one, we talk about to die happy. Maybe an Instagram hashtag when you see someone who's posted their incredibly sumptuous dessert, say, I cannot die happy now. Maybe the night after the Super Bowl, maybe the Chesterton House, the well, big Super Bowl shindig that you all have, there might be one half of the room with somebody in it who says, ah, they won. I can die happy now. It's a tongue-in-cheek way to describe something that's actually real, and it's portrayed in the gospel passage today with Luke, with Simeon, this character, who is of old age and is someone who literally dies happy. And Simeon, in the narrative, is presented in this beautiful way as part of the best of expectant Israel. And he's there in the way that Malachi, in the reading we had from the Old Testament, was waiting in the temple for the Lord to appear. In our psalm, we hear how even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for yourself in this, in this temple, in this dwelling place of the Lord. And Simeon and Anna are deliberately evocative of these, this sort of imagery. This, they're the best elderly, waiting, righteous, and devout people there, waiting for the Savior. And here, the Savior comes, and they die happy. Now, when you think about how we position a Christian kind of belief or faith, in terms of what it means practically for how you can live, one of the things that's always been noted is that a true religious faith lets you face death. It lets you welcome death with serenity. It lets you die happy. Uh, and for Christians, from our perspective, we would say, oh, well, of course, Simeon can die happy because he saw the truth and he was set free. And that's one of the appealing parts of faith. Wouldn't you want to have that, be able to face death? And think of how this news sounds or this, this mindset, how powerful that can be for anyone who's facing suffering or facing oppression. If death itself is something that you can look straight at, and die happy. This is some of the most, powerful, the most powerful things you could give to someone. Now, of course, that's from the Christian perspective. From at least a modern atheist perspective, Simeon is the opposite of someone who's welcoming death in some fantastic way. It's actually, yeah, sure, he dies happy, but it's only because he's deluded. So it gets it all backwards. Anyone can die happy. You just follow any cult leader who will tell you, you drink this Kool-Aid, you'll die. But hey, you'll die happy. You'll come out on the other end. And this happens. People die happy following cult leaders. So there's this question for the atheist, though, which is, okay, so maybe Simeon's deluded. Can you do any better? Can you find a way to die happy as an atheist? It's an interesting question. Because it was actually addressed straight on by some of the best, I think, atheist thinking, historically. They realized this is a problem. So, just to take a couple examples, in the ancient context, the rival views, who, the, when, when Christian faith is being preached in a Hellenistic world, the best rivals around were often the ones that were the best Hellenistic worldviews that were advanced in their philosophical development. So one of these is the Epicureans. Epicurus and the Epicureans get a bad rap today. They're not really like the website Epicurean. It's not about, you know, just like really eating those fancy desserts so you can die happy. That's not actually the Epicurean view. So let's give them some more credit than that. It's actually a very sophisticated view. It's really interesting because it's so strikingly modern. 
Epicurus himself, you know, we have just a little fragments here and there. One of them fragments, he has this fourfold. He writes down the, the summary of everything I think in four pieces, four sentences, four pithy sayings. And here's one of them. Number three, death is nothing to worry about. That's a bold opening claim. Like a lot of groups at the time, they said, look, you pay us a small weekly fee and we will teach you our secrets of how you, can, you too can face death and welcome it with serenity because death is nothing to worry about. And then you had to get into the school. I mean, that's what a school was. You could go join, be a disciple of the school, and you learn the tricks. And eventually, you would, you, would see, you would see the world differently. And in fact, that's how they taught you to accomplish this trick. It was a matter of knowledge. So it really was salvation by knowledge. In fact, for Epicurus, he's like, here's how you overcome death. You learn to see the universe as it really is. And this is where it starts to sound really modern. Because look, everything... You, I, everything that you know is made up of fundamental physical particles. Forget all the stories of the gods you've heard and what's really going on. I'll tell you what's really going on is physics and science. And once you see that, you start to understand what you really are as a human and what your life really is. Your life is a series of particles moving around in the right ways. And of course, he used his science of the day, but it's not that different philosophically from contemporary science. This is a really strikingly insightful modern atheist view way back in the Hellenistic time. It was one of the principal rivals in some ways, in, at the best levels. I think it's one of the best rivals of the Christian faith back then, if you're looking for a worthy rival. Now, in theory, you're supposed to under, just, just understand this. Once you see the physics, once you see this is what all the, that your life really is, he's like, well, then why are you afraid? It goes like this. The only thing that you should be afraid of is bad experiences. Well, that you should be afraid of, bad experiences. Okay, maybe. But here's the thing about death. There are no experiences after death. Well, the only thing you should be afraid of is bad experiences, and there are none. What's to be afraid of? Now, your reaction is probably like almost everyone who's heard this, which is, this is terrible advice. This is completely terrible advice. It's so glib, it just doesn't even... It never works for almost anyone like, to really just pretend that, oh, well, that's all there is. And the reason it's terrible advice is kind of an interesting question itself, a longer discussion about Epicurus seems to get wrong what it is we care about in life. It's not just having good experiences. We care about our projects, care about the things, we, the people, the, the, the kind of larger issues around us that we involve ourselves with. And Epicurus didn't have a way to get to that. So... It's interesting to see the development of this over history. So Epicurus starts this way early on, but for centuries this continues. It's still very much alive today. Uh, seminal figure is probably John Stuart Mill in the, what is it, 18th century in, in England. And the origin of what's today is the dominant ethical theory of, now we call it consequentialism, back then utilitarianism, the idea that somehow it's all some sort of hedonistic idea. What matters in life is experiences, is pleasures. You accumulate more of them, you're happier. So how do you die happy? Well, here's the problem. If it's all about experiences, you can't die happy. Because when you die, you'll lose all the chance to get the only thing that matters, which was those good experiences, those Instagram posts, where you could die happy because you're a dessert. It's a puzzle. The best secular philosophers are very aware of this, and they're working on it as we speak. But it's interesting. Many of them have agreed, look, this is just a problem. Maybe we can't die happy. But at least we're not deluded like Simeon. Simeon is just this pathetic figure who's like caught up in his cult leader's illusion. 
So here we get help from an unlikely friend, an unlikely ally. Of all people, Sigmund Freud saw that this is actually a problem for the atheist. So Freud thought, look, who's really deluded here? He thinks everyone's deluded about death. For he says, uh, I'll just read this here, after all, one's own death is beyond imagining. Whenever we try to imagine it, we see that in our imagination, we really survive as spectators. Oh, there I am, you know, looking at my funeral. There's the people going on without me. Whatever. But I'm there. At bottom, nobody believes in his own death. In his unconscious, every one of us is convinced of his immortality. The thing that Freud noticed is you actually can't live this way. Psychologically, we're just not built this way. And so there's actually this tension between our practical reason and our theoretical reason. If we try and just say, oh, I know that I'm going to die, and just go on. The problem that sets in is if you really think deeply about your death, it should be deeply distressing, so distressing that all action becomes paralyzed. The more insightful atheist thinkers are keenly aware of this. There is something deeply upsetting about death. And if it's not upsetting, it means you haven't really faced it. Square. So the way that people try to deal with this, let's try and help out the atheists. How should we try and deal with this? They say, well, I guess you should live for something bigger than yourself. You know, you're going to die, but there's other things around. This is just the common sense idea that you should try and like attach yourself to something greater than yourself. And there's a long philosophical tradition around this too. And it has, let's just say, a mixed record. One of the interesting figures here is the German idealist philosopher, George Hegel. Hegel thought, well, look, this is a problem. We need a transcendent cause to live for, to face death with equanimity. Well, what could that cause be? Well, it definitely can't be, he thought, the God of the Bible, the God of Simeon. That God just... No modern person can believe it, so we got to move on. So what's our new thing? Well, I said, maybe it's, it's some sort of human cultural progress. It's some sense in which history itself is the transcendent cause. You live for that, maybe you can face death with happiness. And actually, with Hegel, it gets real interesting. He has this whole theological kind of take on it. He's like, okay, I can't believe that God in the Bible, but do you know what God really is? God really is us. Us, all humans, working towards the progress of humanity. Bit by bit, we are instantiating and advancing the actual mind of God. It's us that are, it's this, this sort of turn that's supposed to be, actually, the God is our human progress. It's interesting because the worship of history and progress goes in many different directions, but this is massively influential. It may sound a little hokey to you. It might sound a little bit like what I sometimes call stoner philosophy, the philosophy of the dorm room that's a bit like, dude, what if God's us? <laughs> but don't underestimate the power of this idea. It was extremely intoxicating in 19th century Germany and unfortunately had some horrific consequences. One of Hegel's students was a young Karl Marx. And Marx heard this and said, oh, I just got to get rid of the hokey stoner stuff. Keep the idea of progress and history being it. That's what you live for. That's your transcendent cause. And that story would not end well with some of the most horrific crimes against humanity. Many tens of millions of people died. If you pick the wrong cause to live for, you can turn your supposed turning of, of earth into heaven can turn earth into hell. 
And interestingly, Hegel's influence goes other directions. That's sort of like a, we can call it like a left-wing branch. There's a right-wing branch, actually an extreme right-wing branch that ends up in something like, eventually, the Nazis. And that was to find a cause greater than yourself that should be your nation, your tribe. And they were, in fact, influenced by Hegel. Hegel's not directly responsible for these, but it definitely was in the current of what the early Nazi ideology was listening to. And so both directions here seem problematic. Now let's go back and look at Simeon. Simeon, who might be mocked as being deluded, doesn't look so bad, I think, now. Simeon, it's interesting, he's not just nationalistic, because you might think that, given how he's a devout Jew, pious Jew, waiting in the temple for the Redeemer of Israel. And yet, there's this interesting part in the, in the actual text where the word used, for example, he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. Consolation, same word as comfort for Isaiah 40 in the Septuagint. Comfort, comfort my people. And that kind of comfort was not a nationalistic comfort. It was covenantal. The hope there was to be a light to the Gentiles. That's actually in the, in the, in the song of Simeon. That this Savior would somehow be a light to all peoples. But even worse, it gets stranger. In, in, in after the song, when he, he blesses the child, he tells Mary and Joseph, this, will be, this child will be a cause of the rising and falling of many within Israel. It's not about the triumph of one ethnic group over the others. It's somehow much more complicated, and it's going to involve eventually the fulfillment of covenantal purposes to bless all nations. And it's also interesting that he's described as righteous and devout. This devout word is a really weird one. It's not used anywhere in the New Testament except by Luke, in only just a couple places. And in every place, that devout is a kind of, it seems to describe these people who are faithful covenantal Jews, not just nationalistic Jews. And the key place here is Pentecost. The listeners at Pentecost who heard all the different languages and realized this, this movement, this, they are actually, that's, this is the fulfillment of our covenant. Those people are called this same word, this weird word, devout, that's as it's translated. So maybe Simeon was just deluded, but what if he wasn't? What if he was a faithful listener? He was waiting on a deeper covenantal and non-nationalistic God that would bless all the nations. What if he could discern in this little child somehow the very movement of history that Hegel was looking for, that kind of cause bigger than yourself? What if he was seeing somehow that God is working out a way to inaugurate a new kind of society, a society of solidarity of the kind that Marx was looking for? Maybe Simeon wasn't deluded at all, and maybe what he saw in that child was what let him die happy. And so I'll close with the words from the 1979 BCP version of the Song of Simeon. Lord, you now have set your servant free to go in peace as you have promised. For these eyes of mine have seen the Savior whom you have prepared for all the world to see, a light to enlighten all the nations and the glory of your people Israel. Amen.